Welcome to Conservation for Kids, a conservation podcast for kids and families, where we explore cool animals and environments from the deepest ocean to the tallest mountain. I'm your host, Samuel Morris. Thank you so much for joining us today. Last week, we talked about invasive species with Dr. Dorothy Boris from Gordon College. In this episode, we will be talking about de-extinction with Dr. Andrew Pass from the University of Melbourne. De-extinction may sound like a made-up word or science fiction, but de-extinction exists. It is a real thing. It's where scientists try to genetically reconstruct an organism. For this to work, DNA from the species is required. Before we get into the interview, last week we introduced the animal sound. We are now going to play this week's animal sound. Animal sounds are a fun way so you and your family can learn more about an animal. Because conservation is serious, but it can also be lots of fun. We are now going to play this week's animal sound. Here it is. Can you guess this mystery animal? Feel free to hit pause and talk to your family about what you think it is. Now we're going to go to our interview with Dr. Pask, and we'll reveal the answer later in the show. Dr. Pask is a professor in epigenetics at the University of Melbourne. He received his PhD from La Trobe University, and he has published over 100 papers on developmental genetics. His work is involved in sequencing the genome of the extinct Tasmanian tiger, and he runs the Thylacine Integrated Restoration Research Lab, or Tiger Lab. Dr. Pass, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a podcast about conservation. Can you tell us about the environment where you live, like what kind of animals and plants are there and that kind of stuff? Yeah, I live in Victoria, Australia. I live in the outer eastern suburbs where my house is. So I live in a place called Ringwood. And although we're pretty suburban, there are lots of marsupials around. Obviously, I'm a huge marsupial fan, so they're my favourite species that we have around us. But we have lots of ringtail possums, brushtail possums. Um, I see a mob of kangaroos pretty much every day, particularly on the sunny days. They like to just sit out on the paddocks and lay out there, which I think is really, really nice. Unfortunately, we also have a lot of cats around. Cats are really bad for our native mammals. Uh, quite a few foxes around as well and sort of other predators which are not good for our, our little mammal species. But, yeah, I guess that's my local environment. Cool. How did you first become interested in science and conservation? I grew up in England. So I was born in England. I lived there until I was 10 years old. I lived in southeast London, so very sort of built up, uh, very industrialised area where I spent my childhood. And then we moved to Melbourne when I was 10. And then suddenly I was surrounded by these crazy, amazing animals, kangaroos and wallabies and possums and things. And I just became completely obsessed with the amazing animals that we have in Australia. And then we lived in a place called Fantra Gully, which is right up on top of a hill, right next to a massive national park. So I used to just take myself on walks all the time through the national park and finding echidnas and all sorts of incredible species that I just became really in love with Australian native fauna. And then when I went to university, I was really good at biology because I always loved animals. When I went to university, I found ways that I could continue to study Australian marsupials with my love of genetics because I was really good at genetics. I love genetics. And then I could do marsupial genetics. And then I could combine the two of those to think about novel ways that we can work to conserve marsupials. Interesting. What led you to become... Um, interested in Tasmanian tigers and what inspired your research? I read an NPR article about that. Yeah, so 
you know, when I, I first started, you know, I loved marsupials and I wanted to know what they all were. So I borrowed books from the library because we didn't have the internet when I was a kid. <clears throat> and so we borrowed books from the library and I read all about the different marsupial species. And one of the ones you would always see a picture of was the Tasmanian tiger because it's a very recently extinct animal. So up until 86 years ago, we still had Tasmanian tigers. But it was also an incredibly unique marsupial. So they always had the picture of it there and they would describe it as the only apex predator marsupial that we had. And so, I mean, of course, it's the coolest of any of the marsupials. It's got stripes like a tiger. It is an apex predator. It looks just like a wolf, but it had a pouch with joeys in it like any other marsupial has. So it just really captured my imagination. And then when I started working on marsupial genetics, you know, I have this, this great job where I get to go to the museum and I get to have a look through museum collections and access specimens there. And there are tons of Tasmanian tiger specimens in the museums. And so I asked one of the curators if I could just sample a tiny bit on the edge of one of the pelts, one of the skins, just to see if we could still get good DNA from it. This was like 20 years ago and discovered that we could. And that kind of opened the way for this research. I just started going, well, if we can get a little bit of the genome, can we get the whole genome? Can we actually make those genes work again? And then ultimately, can we actually bring that species back from extinction? Is the Tasmanian tiger actually like really capable of living again? And how would you recreate it? Like how can an animal be recreated? Yeah, it's a good question, right? So we still can't create life where there is none. So we can't just, you know, go to those museum specimens and somehow reactivate them and make those living cells again that we can make an animal from. So once an animal's gone extinct and that tissue's dead, it is dead. So the way that the extinction science works is that you have to start with something living because we want to create a living animal at the end, obviously, and our extinct animal's extinct. So what we do is we look around today in nature and say, what is the closest living relative to our animal that's gone extinct? And in the case of the Tasmanian tiger, it's a little mouse-sized marsupial called a fat-tailed dunnard. So it's a very close living relative, obviously very different in size and behaviour and all of those other things because it's a tiny little marsupial to a Tassie tiger, but it is the closest living relative. Then what we have to do is sequence its DNA, its genome. So that contains the entire set of instructions of how you build a dunnart. And we have to do that for our extinct species. So we've done that already for the thylacine. My lab did that about five years ago. We sequenced all of the DNA of a thylacine. So we understand exactly how that thylacine set of instructions looks. And then we compare the two together. So we're comparing our living cell from the dunnart to our DNA that we've got from the thylacine. And we look at everywhere that they're different. And they're not that different. They're like maybe 5% of their genome is different. And then what you have to do is go in and edit that 5% or edit those differences. So you're turning that living dunnart cell into a thylacine cell. So we're essentially genetically engineering that cell to be now a thylacine. And then once you've got that cell, we can use standard cloning techniques. We use these in things like human IVF or to produce livestock, things like sheep and cows or dogs and cats. All the time, you have really good methods for turning that cell back into a whole living animal. And that whole living animal at the end should be a thylacine. Oh, that's really interesting. If the Tasmanian tiger was recreated, how would it help stabilize the ecosystem and what would the effects be? Yeah, so these apex predators, those animals that sit at the top of the food chain, are really, really, really important in protecting an ecosystem and in balancing out that ecosystem. You have to have those predators there. And their really important role is they eat the weak, sick, injured animals in the populations of animals that sit beneath it in that food chain. 
A great example of what happens when you lose an apex predator is what we saw happen in Tasmania with the Tasmanian devil. So that is a smaller marsupial species that sat beneath the Tasmanian tiger in the food chain. So Tassie tigers eat Tasmanian devils. And Tasmanian devils got a disease called the devil facial tumor disease. And it was like a transmissible cancer that grows big tumors on their face. And eventually they end up starving to death uh, because these tumors become so big they can't eat normally. So it's a really awful disease. But what happens is because there was no apex predators in the population, those sick Tasmanian devils that have these, these big tumors, they lived a really long time in that population. And so they spread that disease to hundreds of other individuals. And that led to the almost extinction of the Tasmanian devil. It would have gone naturally extinct if we hadn't stepped in as scientists to isolate some uninfected individuals and protect them from getting that disease. So if they was left to their own devices, they would have gone extinct. If the Tasmanian tiger was around, it eats those weak, those weakened and sick individuals before they have a chance to spread that disease so widely. So as soon as that animal starts being a bit tired, can't run as fast, it's immediately eaten by a Tasmanian tiger. And that's how apex predators really stop the spread of diseases and make sure that all the other animals in that ecosystem stay really healthy. The other big thing is because it was our only apex predator, there's no other species in Tasmania that can step into that role. When we lost that animal, there is nothing else that can, you know, take on that role of eating sick, wounded individuals in a population. They just persist there forevermore. And so these are really, really important, you know, animals in that ecosystem. And there's some great examples of where they've brought apex predators back to an ecosystem. One of the really good ones is when they returned the wolves to Yellowstone National Park. And they showed that just by returning the wolves, not only did it help all those other animals that sit beneath it maintain healthier populations, but it led to the flowering of wildflowers that they hadn't seen in Yellowstone for 50, 60 years, and even changed the course of rivers through the Yellowstone Valley as a result of putting that apex predator in. And that's because they found that the, you know, the knock-on effects of having that apex predator meant that there was less rabbits, so these flowers could finally bloom that hadn't bloomed for decades because they weren't getting eaten so much as being young little seedlings. And they also had an impact on the beaver population, which was so profound that it changed the way that the rivers ran through the valley. So it's not just the animals that they eat that are protected in an ecosystem. It's even things like the flowers and the plants and the rivers and everything are all controlled by having a really good apex predator at the top of the food chain in your ecosystem. So what we've seen with the Tasmanian devil in Tasmania is probably just the beginning of the impacts that we'll see by destabilizing that ecosystem completely by removing that Tassie tiger. And that's why we think it's so important to bring that animal back if we can, because it plays that really, really important role. When will the first Tasmanian tiger be created, like the first, I don't know, prototype? I don't know what you'd call yeah, it. Yeah, well, that's a good word for it. I'm, I think we're hoping that in about 10 years' time, we should be producing our first thylacines. So it's a lot of DNA editing that we have to do, um, but that technology is getting better all the time. But based on where we currently are, I reckon about, about a decade is a reasonable time frame to, to think that we'll be seeing some, some baby thylacines. Cool. Will this project open the door for other extinct animals to come back? Yeah, so we're already partnered with a massive group in America who are working on the mammoth de-extinction project. So they're trying to bring back the woolly mammoth. That's a lot more complicated because woolly mammoths have a 22-month 
gestation. So to take it from a, a fertilized egg through to a baby mammoth is 22 months, almost two years. Whereas in a marsupial, to go from fertilization to one of the little marsupial babies that's born, it's about two weeks. So it's a lot easier for us to figure that out than it is for the mammoth people. But we're working with them to try and develop new methods to bring woolly mammoths back. But as for other species, you can apply this technology to any animal where it still has intact DNA left in specimens in museums. So that's not dinosaurs, right? So DNA will only last a couple of million years at the very, very most. And because dinosaurs went extinct tens of millions of years ago, there is no dinosaur DNA left in, you know, mosquitoes in amber or in actual dinosaur bones or anything like that. There's nothing left there anymore. So we can't bring back a T-Rex or a Velociraptor, but for things that have gone recently extinct, for species that have gone extinct in the last one to 200 years, you can definitely apply this technology to bring those animals back. And even for things like the mammoth, which have gone extinct thousands of years ago, it's still possible to do it. Will the Tasmanian tiger ever be reintroduced to mainland Australia? That's a really good question. So we'd have to see how they went on Tasmania first, but they used to be found right across Australia up until a few thousand years ago. And so they were everywhere around the whole of the mainland. Um, we think they were probably outcompeted on the mainland by the dingo. The dingo was an introduced species. It was just introduced many thousands of years ago, but it was brought in by, um, by humans migrating down into Australia and they brought dingoes with them. And it probably was a little bit more successful in the hot, arid climate than the thylacine was. The thylacine is probably more adapted, we think, to cooler climates. So, you know, depending on how we go with global warming, it might be a bit of a tough gig for a thylacine to live on the mainland again. But there's a lot of advantages to having a marsupial predator back in place on the mainland. It would be increased competition for dingoes, for foxes, for feral cats in terms of it might be able to help control some of those populations. They would certainly eat rabbits. So it would be another good biological control for an introduced pest species like the rabbit for us. So it would definitely be something that people could consider doing down the track. But you have to study these things very, very carefully first to really determine if it's going to have a beneficial you know, impact on the ecosystem or whether we might be creating another pest introduced species problem. This is the last question I ask all my guests. Can you suggest one action that families can make to make a difference on the things we talked about today? I think really being open-minded is my big thing about genetic engineering technologies in the future moving forward is something I would like to see a change in in Australia. I think a lot of the work that we do is going to be editing or changing marsupial DNA. And I think one of the things I find is that people immediately go, no, no, we can't do this. This is terrible. You know, we're playing God. We're messing around with DNA. We shouldn't be, be you know, doing these things. This is, you know, something that's not right within the realm of science, that we're pushing things too far. I think for a lot of our species, they are going to go extinct if we are not able to step in and apply some of these genetic technologies to saving them. A great example of a project we're working on at the moment is with the northern quoll. So it's this beautiful, you know, little cat-sized marsupial, really pretty animal. They are going extinct because they eat cane toads. Cane toads are an introduced pest species that we brought here have gone crazy, you know, they've produced, you know, millions and millions of cane toads that are spreading across all of Australia. And none of our animals are adapted to eating that toxin. And when they eat that toxin, it puts them into cardiac arrest. They have a little heart attack and they die. And so we know that the quoll is going to go extinct 
uh, as a result of cane toad. So we can see that the population is declining and we know that cane toad populations are just going up and up and up. So we can actually step in as a genetic biologist and we can edit just two tiny letters in their entire 3 billion base pair code that will make that animal resistant to cane toad toxin. And then not only can we save then the northern quoll from extinction, but they can actually eat cane toads, which would be amazing because they can then help control this invasive pest species. So I just want people to be really open-minded about where we might deploy this technology, when we might use genetic engineering, things like bringing back the thylacine, there's really good ecological reasons of why you would want to bring that animal back. That, you know, in addition to just bringing back an animal that we completely hunted and obliterated and made extinct, it also plays a really primary role in conserving all the other animals in that environment. So it's a really, really important species to bring back. I don't think we should use this technology for every animal, but I think in cases like with the northern quoll, like with bringing back the thylacine, we can very thoughtfully apply these technologies for good and to help maintain biodiversity in our country. We have so many unique animals here in Australia, and it's vitally important that we protect them better than we are. And so my big thing would just be that I ask kids and families that they just maintain an open mind about when and how we should use these technologies and are accepting of, you know, there are instances where this is going to be the only way that we can save certain species from extinction. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Pask. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Pask. We're now going to listen to the animal sound one more time. This is your final chance to guess before we reveal the animal sound. This week's animal sound is a Tasmanian devil, which is the largest carnivorous marsupial in the world and has one of the most powerful bite forces of any animal. For its size, it has a bite force that is even more powerful than that of a lion. It is now only found in Tasmania, although a few thousand years ago it was widespread across Australia. Tasmanian devils make a range of shrieking and grunting calls. These sounds are often heard when the devils are eating at night. It is thought the Tasmanian devil got its name after Europeans heard these unworldly noises coming from the Tasmanian wilderness at night. They thought that they were hearing the sounds of devils. Tasmanian devils are territorial solitary creatures and guard their food very aggressively. Occasionally, when a larger animal carcass is found, several Tasmanian devils may tolerate each other for a short time. They are nocturnal, spending their days alone in hollow logs, caves, and burrows, and emerge to eat only at night. If you'd like to learn more about the Tasmanian tiger and how the genetic editing can help the northern quoll eradicate cane toads, we've added links in the show notes so you and your family can learn more about these topics. Special thank you to today's guest, Dr. Andrew Pass. Tune in next week for a conversation with Dr. Stephen Morris about pollinators. I'm your host, Samuel Morris, and you've been listening to Conservation for Kids. Conservation for Kids was inspired by a project for my school, St. Paul's Grammar School in Sydney, Australia. I'd like to thank our year six teachers, Mrs. Watson and Miss Collin, and our mentor, Miss Baudinet, for their support. Fact-checking services are provided by Melanie Morris, and our executive producer is Peter Morris, and I'm your host, Samuel Morris.